Hello and welcome to the Coon Hunting University Podcast. This is your host, Tyler Duncan. And like always, class is in session. Hey y'all, so Coon Hunting University is brought to you by Superior Light Company, best lights in the business. If you don't believe me, go check them out, nighthunters.com. Use coupon code CHUPODCAST at checkout and receive almost $20 off Hellcat Max. But that code is good for any superior light on that website and the battery tester, which works with the Hellcat Max. So go over there and check them out. So today on Coonut University Podcast, we have a very special guest, Mr. Guy Manning. Mr. Guy was a professional basketball player. He's an outstanding individual, and I've really enjoyed this interview. He's, he's one of the founding fathers of the Lone Star 5000 and the Black IP Classic in Texas. We're going to be talking about those two hunts and how they came about. We're also going to be talking about Mr. Guy's story and the dogs that he's owned and some of the dogs that he's hunted with that we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, from other people. So it'll be really interesting to hear Mr. Guy's perspective on all of it. And it's an outstanding story and his story should be celebrated. I'd like to issue a special thank you to Mr. Wesley Young whom suggested I interview Mr. Guy Manning and also Mr. Joe Manning Jr., whom you heard in previous episodes who kind of helped me line it up a little bit. And Mr. Wesley also helped me line it up. So thank you to both of those individuals for helping us get this lined up. So I'm going to quit yapping. Without further ado, Mr. Guy Manning. Y'all sit back and enjoy. All right, Mr. Guy. Great to have you on the Coonutton University podcast, man. I've really been looking forward to this and I believe it's going to be awesome. Well, I hope so. Yes, sir, for sure. So, Mr. Guy, if you could, please tell the folks out of the list of this a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Guy Manning. I live in the Freestone County area here in the state of Texas. I'm a rancher by trade. I'm a retired professional basketball player. I've taught school both on high school and college levels over the years. Uh, I attended Prairie A&M University. I received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Biology and uh, Physical Education. I also acquired a master's degree, Texas Southern University in Houston, in business administration and MBA. And uh, also, I've done uh, PhD work at the University of Houston and also Kalamazoo, University of Kalamazoo in Michigan. And uh, I never finished my PhD simply because I was so involved, I didn't have time to take a year off my workspace to finish my PhD, but I got quite a few hours for the PhD, which, you know, it's, it's good and it's paid off for me. I'm retiring from the ranching business for the most part now because of health issues, but we still own a big part of the farm. We just disposed about half of the acreage that we owned here in Freestone County. We still run a few cattle. My wife tells me all the time I got more hounds than I got cows, and that may be true, but I'm going to say I have more good hounds than I have good cattle because those good ones are hard to come by. But I've been a fanatic about coon hunting for years, yeah, by being a way of life for us when we were kids, not only way of life, uh, it was an outlet for recreation when we had time off from the ranch or from the farm. And we found a lot of joy, not only myself, but my two brothers who preceded me in death. That's what we did. We hunted and fished, and uh, we just grew a, a real likeness to coon dogs, to hounds, and we had all kinds in those days. And we thought we had some good ones because they put food on the table for us, not only with the raccoon, but, you know, the squirrels. We did other things. We deer hunted. And uh, my son seemed like he has, has followed that same path. He's not much in coon hunting, but this day and time, he doesn't 
like for me to be in the woods by myself too much. He goes with me, and he certainly loves competition hunting because he's kind of a competitive kid. He likes to see those guys get at it and bid on the dogs and all of that. But that's kind of where it's been for me for the last 70-plus years. Uh, I grew up on the farm, and I went off to college and went off to graduate school and had a brief career in, in, in the NBA and in the American Basketball Association. I'll tell you exactly how old I am. We, in fact, I was one of the first 100 players drafted in the new American Basketball Association uh, over 30-some years ago, and they have since been absorbed by the National Basketball Association. I was All-American at Prairie View for three years uh, playing basketball. We've gone from there, you know, into other things, into ranching, into coon hunting, and into public speaking. Uh, I've, I've spoken quite a lot around the country to young people, to graduate classes, to you name it. Any social group that would seem to seek my services, I've uh, I've obliged them over the years. Not don't do so much of it anymore simply because of my age and of some health issues. So when you were talking about being a professional athlete like you were, did you ever, you know, coon hunting isn't a mainstream thing. Were you still coon hunting while you were a professional basketball player? Oh, yes. When I had the time, we, we were pleasure. We weren't, we weren't competition hunting at the time. I'd come home on, on a leave or on, on weekends or whatever time I had. My mom would always maintain my hounds. I always had me a hound. Of course, I bird hunted a little bit in between, you know. We had a lot of birds out here, a lot of quail, bob white quail on the ranch, and I would do that. But, yes, I would go in the bottom on the ranch or another place, and I'd turn the dog loose. and just I just love the sound uh, of the voices, whether they were ball mouth or chop mouth. It's just something about them chasing whatever they were chasing in those days. And even now, uh, most of the time, they were chasing coons. That's some pretty good dogs. We thought we, we could get to a tree or two before the hunt was over, and we'd look at Mr. Ricky pretty often. Yeah, but it was an intriguing moment for me and and even with some of the guys that i played with would come home with me on weekends or or during the leave or, or off season and i exposed them to coon hunting to deer hunting to to wrangling cattle and, and and some of those guys went on to buy large blocks of land around this country in the united states and, and a lot of them are into the farming now but they brought their family into it they had never seen that especially those kids who were we were considered uh, sort of underprivileged, you know, grew up in, in confined home areas. Uh, all they saw was just uh, a school and when they could go to school or, or, or they never got a chance. A lot of them never had, had ever gone out of the city until they went off to college. And that was a new way of life for them. And I'm pleased with that. If nothing more, I got an opportunity to expose uh, my fellow man. And it's black and white and all colors to, to other ways of life in this country. And I was pleased, and I've been pleased with that. I draw a lot, a lot of substance from the fact that there were lives that I touched, that I think, who went on to pursue those lives and, and made very good at it. i got a friend right down the road here. I went to undergrad school with him, Wesley Ratcliffe. He's, he owns the Caney Creek Ranch, several thousand acres, and he grows and he breeds and raised some of the finest sharp break cattle in the United States right now. Larry Jeffries in Houston, who was played with the Detroit Pistons uh, in his day. He went on to become a, a great cutting horse man. He bought properties and bought some of the final horses in the country. He's done very well. But there's many of them. Tony Brackens Jr., just above just me, above me here, about oh, I have not three or four miles of me. He has a big farm, a big ranch, and uh, 
He's in the cattle business. Of course, these kids, now, Tony had had some exposure uh, on the ranch because he grew up in the country. But here again, I was just trying to show them there, uh, diversify your life if you possibly can because athletics are only for so long. And when that is over, what are you going to do then? And uh, and I certainly uh, inspired kids to go to school. And when I found good athletes, I would call different universities and colleges around the country to take a look at these kids, give them a chance. And some of them have gone on to be very good citizens and good producing people in this country. That gives me a lot of, lot of uh, substance and energy when I think about that. Yes, sir, for sure. And you know, Mr. Guy, you hear it time and time again, as far as you can take someone from the city, you know, never been out of the city, take them to the country. And that's what they want to do. They want to be in the country, but you take right. someone out of the country and bring them to the city. You don't ever hear of anybody leaving the country to go to the city. You know what I mean? I, very, I don't I have good, good reply. You are so right. Uh, it's, it's addictive. There's no question about it. Yes, sir. It for is sure. addictive. It is. Yes, sir. And that's something that I've noticed. You know, you, you talk about, you expose those people and now they're living in the country and they're wanting to ranch and, but, if they exposed you to the city, you, you didn't move to the city, you know? <laughs> no, I did not. I know I did not. In fact, I lived in the city for quite a few years. I had a career with Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. For about 18 years, I worked for the company. And it was always my quest. The day would come that I would say enough, enough is enough. And uh, I moved back. I, I really did. And, and I, did, made a, I made a decent living in the city. You know, my, my wife was gainfully employed. I was gainfully employed after I left pro ball. But I was in graduate school, and when that, when that ended, I was study looking for the day that I could, you know, I could uh, uproot and come back to the country. Yes, sir. So how did you get your start into competition coon hunting? I'd always heard about it for years. And over beyond it being a way of life, you know, in reference to recreation and, and also providing food. I attended a competition hunt. I used to field trial bird dogs, and I saw how people, how a man and a dog could team up and produce a product that was second to none and that had nobody, no other product like it in the country or the world. I had read about the foxhounds in England. I read about different dogs being bred for different, for, for different things, for its hunting and for its chasing game, retrieving game, pointing game. And I got to looking at, I believe it was a full cry. And I was got a chance to read about men who were trapping lions. They'd run the mountain lion to where they to the tree it, and then they would sedate it and move it to to different locations, especially if the cat was giving trouble to. And in those days, and what I was reading about was sheep herders. You know, cats were pretty tough on sheep. And, and, and then they had a, what they call a competition one day. And I, I remember looking at the movie where the red fern grows, and I saw how those people got together as a community and, and put together a little stipend for for the best coon dog. And I said, you know, that's interesting to me. And then I got to pursuing it a little bit more, and I finally seen a American cooner, and I was looking at some UKC hunts, how they would have bench shows, coon on a log, uh, hunts at night. And I said, you know, that's interesting. I attended them a couple, several times. And I got to pursuing me a, a competition dog. I didn't know the difference, but a, a good coon dog can find his place anywhere. Competition, putting food on the table, or, or just chasing a raccoon. And it just kind of grew on me as a country boy who likes competition, who likes to meet people, 
And during that time, I met some of the finest, finer people uh, as I've ever met. Now, I've been in a, different phases of life, you know, from school teaching to professional athletics to politics, you name it. And I said, you know, there's some fine people dealing with dogs. And, and uh, finally a man, uh, an older man asked me, would you like to have a, a competition dog or would you like to try to go to on a competition hunt? What is a competition hunt? And I remember years ago when people don't remember, we used to hunt four hours. And in hunting those four hours, it was a kind of a marathon. And you had to know your dog's voice. You had, when he was tracking, when he was treeing, when when he struck, uh, the temperament of the track, whether it was a cold track, a hot track. And I said, you know, that's kind of scientific too, you know. And I, I just kind of went from there and uh, got the competition hunting on a local level and then I kind of went on a national level uh, as far as going to the UKC World, uh, Walker Days, uh, Winter Classic. And I said, man, these kind of people follow hounds? And one thing led to another. And then I came in touch with a man named Jarvis Humphreys. I used to see his picture in, in, the, in the magazines all the time, hunting black and tan dogs. And I got a chance to meet Jarvis, a very personal man. Uh, a man who uh, I think whatever he set his mind to do, he could do it with a degree of success. When PKC started, when he started PKC, a lot of people won't believe this. They look at my number now and they said, man, you you got in this thing when this thing was for, in his infant stages. I said, well, I did. Had an opportunity one time to buy 25% of PKC, me and a friend of mine. And I, I don't regret not having bought it, but I see a way if I had, I don't think I'd have regretted it, but Jarvis made a run at it, and he made a great success. And this thing has blossomed into a, uh, almost a Fortune 500, if you ask a lot of people, you know, right now. It was always intriguing to me what you could do with a dog. And I was reading about blind people, how they take a dog could lead you around for the rest of your life or the rest of his life and keep you safe. Now, that's a pretty intelligent animal. Now, some of them I, I wouldn't trust my life with, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he's a pretty intelligent being, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you can find one. Yes, sir. And it's amazing. You know, dogs well, really are overall. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Yeah. It really, they, they, they really are. They, you know, they even breed dogs now that can sense cancer and stuff. You know oh, what I mean? That, you're so right at that. They use them for medicinal purposes. You're so right. I mean, uh, drug detection. Yeah. Uh, you name it. Bomb detection. I mean, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, that's it's, right. It's insane, really, how how much we wouldn't be here if it weren't for dogs. You know, I don't. I don't. I think you're good point. Good you know, point. We might, but it would have been a lot tougher. You know, it would have been a lot tougher. You're so right. So. And you were talking about the early days of PKC and everything. And, you know, you, you obviously, you were there from the start of yes. it or even before yeah. when it was PCA, right? Right. When it was PCA, that's exactly what it was. PCA. Yep. Yep. And I've heard the old stories and everything and it, it's really cool how it started. You've obviously accomplished a lot because, you know, I was researching you for this and I found an article, I think in 2004, where you had won your seventh Texas state championship. You yes. you won first place, and the dog that won second, you actually owned it too. So <laughs> yeah, I did, I did, sure did. If you could, 
yeah, please tell me some of those hounds that you've owned over the years and y'all's accomplishments and just walk us through all that. And during that time, I had a dog called uh, the Texas Ranger. And I had a dog called Rock Jr., which we call him RJ, which was probably the most winning dog money-wise that I've owned. He won somewhere close to 100 grand during that time. And we didn't have the hunts that we have now. We A $10 hunt, you'd have, you'd have 40, 50 dogs at a $10 hunt. And this dog was a consistent winner. Didn't have a great mouth, had a pretty mouth. It was nice to listen to, but didn't have a volume that I've heard in a lot of dogs. The Ranger dog was a little bit different. He was kind of a, a blow through yarn, that's kind of an uh, ambush type dog, but could track. He went, both of those dogs went back to the old Finley River Chief line. And I and that's what I kind of got addicted to when I first started uh, in the competition hunt because it, when you look at a four-hour hunt, especially this time of year, later on in the winter, you're going to get a lot of cold. We used to have a lot of cold weather out in our country. Every dog can't track a coon two hours old or two and a half, three hours. But I do believe some of the – I've seen some Finley River dogs trail a coon, I believe – it could trail it a mile and tree it. But that other dog wouldn't say very little, at all, if anything at all, on it until tree time came. I was hunting a dog during that time called R. Junior, I mean, Rock Jr., R.J., and, and the Texas Ranger. That Ranger won the overall state championship that year. And we had to run off. My R.J. dog, I didn't hunt him very much because he was getting some age on him. Taking 16 dogs in the championship, and he was the 16th dog. I hunted him and won the championship with him that same night and uh and he was just a just an old dog that treed raccoons now hogs were becoming very prevalent in our country at that time he would he loved him a pig now and then and i could tell you the moment that he struck a pig but if he ran across a coon track i could almost tell you the moment that he switched he was going to switch and he was going to treat that coon it didn't make a difference whether he had been on the ground the last hour or two. He could be laid up. He could run on that tree. And if he caught that wind, he was a tree raccoon. And uh, I bred that dog. I, that's some of my old lines. I didn't breed Ranger. Got it from a young man down in Louisiana. But he and Jim Smith and Jack Cannon were, were big buddies. Man, I kept worrying about, about that dog, that Ranger dog. He was a little much for some of them because he'd get through the country I was a little younger then. I could, you know, I could walk at a decent pace, but I found him many times treed. We didn't have the technology then that we have now. But yeah, those two dogs were the year I won the state championship overall, and then won the runoff that same year with two different dogs. So, what about some of your dogs? Maybe before them. I mean, obviously you won a ton before them. If that was up to your seventh state championship, then right? Right. Right. I think all total, if my archives serve me correctly, I won right in the neighborhood of 20 to 21 state championships, PKC, in uh, some form of it. I owned a dog called Bean Blossom Bounce, who was a son of the world champion Bean Blossom Buck, owned by Pride Gann, I believe, yes. And uh, Buck was off a, a dog called Finley River Buck, who was a son of... Uh, I believe A. Shires Ozark Dan, who was out of Finley River Chief. And this dog was, uh, I made him a Grand Knight champion, and I ended up selling him to some people in Indiana. And this is a heartwarming story. I'm going to be very brief with this one. That old dog was about five or six years old. I was working some young dogs, and he was in there. I had him in the kennel, and, and, and he loved to hunt. And, I, and this guy called me. And I said, well, I got an old Grand Knight champion dog. I'm not hunting him. 
I said, but I, I just, he loves to hunt. And I said, I'd hate to be cut off from the things I like to do because of age. He said, well, that's what I'm looking for. Well, this guy shipped him to this guy, and he the first night he got him, he said, I couldn't stay at home. I turned him loose, and he treed two coons here out of my trailer park. He ended up selling that dog. He had a young man working for him, and this young man's father was sick, and his mom was sick. He was the breadwinner. A young man, I mean, he was less than 20 years old. He took that old dog that winter, and highs were a good price during that time. And that man called me in the spring and told me the story behind that dog after he got him. That man sold over 200 raccoons to keep bread on the table for his mother and father until they recuperated. Now, I don't know what their problems were, but he was the breadwinner. He said, that kid, and said, I ended up giving him that dog because of the things that he did for his family with that old dog. Now, see, at some point in life, money is not everything. You think about the people you touch and the people whom you, you, you come in contact with and you enhance the quality of life. And who would have thought that a dog could do that for an entire family? And uh, this kid, uh, he kept the lights on, kept the water running, and he also put bread on the table with that old dog selling over 200 raccoon pelts uh, that winter. Pretty impressive. It's, I know it was intriguing to me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of that back then, too. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, now it's a lot different. I mean, hides aren't worth anything, but. No, right. Back then, everybody was poor, you know. Sure, sure, sure. So that dog, you know, he was winner. He was a supplemental income. That's right. He was a supplemental income. In fact, that 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 gentleman that owned the trailer park said that was the only income because he helped the kid too because the kid worked for him in the trailer park. He said, but man, at night, he said, I let the kid off early in the evening to get some rest where he could hunt. So he would hunt just about all night. And this was in Indiana. And he said, I, I just I just thank you. and said, we would like to get another one if you. And I, I had some young dogs. I, they they weren't near uh, the coon dog he was. But I think I ended up shipping that man a couple more dogs over the years. And he was pleased with them. Yeah, that that's awesome. That's an awesome story. It really is. What are some of the Ebony River dogs that you've owned over the years? All right, I'm going to give you a list of them. I own Ebony River's Annie Mae, who was out of oh, the dog that won the national. She was a dual grand. I ended up selling, giving, selling her to Larry Meeks them over the years. She was a good one. At seven years old, old female, they took her and won with her, bred her, she produced. I had Ebony River's R.J., Ebony River's Texas Ranger. I had Ebony River's Black Eyed P. I had Ebony Rivers. I I got 40 dogs. I've been going through my, my my archives here. In the last 30 years, I got 45, right at 50 night champions and grand night champions, gold champions and platinum champions, and just regular champions. My son came up with about 50 dogs, that, 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 and, and 90% of those, or 95%, I bred and raised right here in my kiln. From the old Finley River line and the old banjo Johnson banjo line. That is extremely impressive. It really is. I don't know if people realize how hard that is to do. Well, that's that, that's what we did, and all of this was part time. I never gone full time. Had the opportunity to be a full time trainer handler for different people, and you know, J.C. Ellis asked me several times if I'd go to hunt for him, but. That was never one my objective. Uh, I had a family, and I was trying to raise it. I had one son. And I was trying to raise him and my wife, and uh, and I have I maintained a job. Of course, I had a ranch that I was maintaining, and all this is on a part-time basis. 
Yeah, that's extremely impressive. It really is. And do you feel like if you would have started to do it as an income, it would have spoiled it? I do. I really do. Not that we are extravagant livers. My wife and I both came from, you know, menial uh, upbringings, and we know the value of a dollar. For what I was looking for, I never looked to get rich in this business. I was looking for the satisfaction that I found in it and meeting people and dealing with dogs. Because at the end of the day, I brought nothing in this world, and as a result, I won't be carrying anything out. And I I was just trying to find, and I did find a great amount of satisfaction in dealing with dogs and the people I met in and out these hunts. Yes, sir, for sure. Uh, So you were talking about how Johnson's Banjo and Finley River Chief, are they kind of the foundation for your line of dogs? By all means. Now, that's not to say I haven't used other lines of dogs. But by all means, they're the foundation. If I had to give two, if there's a line and people consider them as lines, those would be the two line of dogs of the two breeds that I use for the foundation uh, if I kill them. I had an old jip called the old Rachel, Ebony Rivers Rachel. That was the original Rachel. Which she was a granddaughter of Spring Creek Rock. I got her when she was just a yearling pup, kept her till she's dead. She's buried here on the ranch. She was 17 or 18 years old when she died. We made her a grand night champion. We placed her somewhere in the AC of what was the only world hunt at the time, the ACHA world hunt at Pine Bluff, Arkansas, one year. And I remember my wife telling me many times that I just don't want you breeding her no more. So you're going to kill her with puppies. You've hunted her to death. And I was still living in Houston. I had a nephew named Richard Man, and it lived uh, up close to the ranch. I brought her to him for him to just keep. So I could be bring her up here. I'm gonna just let her run around the house. She'd go off and hunt, but come back. But when he she died, he took her down here in my bullpen. And by the way, I, I bred and raised and sold breast at Charlotte Cal for years too. I buried her in my bullpen, and she's her grave is still there. And that was the old foundation line. We got a little bit little bit shy of 100 pups out of her and about seven or eight breeds. And I was breeding her back to a son of Spring Creek Rock. That's where we got named Clifton River Rock. That's where we got most of our better dogs. They were good-looking dogs, had real nice miles, most of them. And they were fair-sized dogs. And they seemed to to come to this world with, with some sense. You could teach them. They had what I call yard dog sense. You could teach them, and, uh, and they could trail. And when tree time came, most of the times you had to clam, shoot, or cut because they had to grease somewhere there. Yeah, that's awesome. It really is. Did you ever get a chance to hunt with Chief or Banjo or, or Spring Creek Rock or any of those famous dogs from back in the day? I put... I uh, had a friend in Houston who, and we're going to get to Spring, we're going to get to Chief and, ban, and Johnson Banjo. Old Spring Creek Rock, when they first started collecting semen on dogs, Dr. Randy Freilich was the pioneer vet that started that. They didn't know how to do it. This man orchestrated that process. He kept Spring Creek Rock in his office. He was just like a, uh, one of his employees. Rock would come to the office with him every day. And I'd go, and Dr. Freilich was my main vet at the time when I lived in Houston. I used to go over and sit and play with old Rock. I never hunted with him. He was a little bit old. We didn't try to hunt him. Now, I was in several hunts where Friendly River Chief and Johnson Banjo, I never drew them. But I, from people that had hunted with them, and I listened to them run time or two. But they were getting of age when, when I was kind of coming on the scene. 
Uh, I knew uh, the man that owned old Spring Creek Rock. I can't think of his name now. Was a was a gentleman in every in, in every respect of man. I mean, and the guy that owned Finley River Chief, he came from a, from some of the Amish people. That dog was bred up in Pennsylvania. Uh, but the last man that owned him was um, uh, I want to say John Monroe. And I talked to John many times. I never did get to hunt with him, but he was an old dog. If a coon walked at 6 o'clock and you turned him in on 9, he'd trim somewhere before 12. Had a real good mouth. He wasn't an explosive type tree dog. When he set up, he would tree about every about three or four barks a minute, but he was not going anywhere. If you waited to 12 o'clock the next day, that's where you hooked him on the lead. And that's what people went for as hunts at that time. Hunts, were, they were marathon hunts, three and four hours. See, it hadn't been long ago that they, they went to three. I mean, they got off to three-hour hunts. They used to be three hours for years. And then now, now we got our hunts. We got two-hour hunts, hour and a half, which is good. You know, that's good, especially being my age. That's, I can't handle up that long most of the time now. But I never got a chance to answer your question. I never got a chance to hunt with either of the dogs, Barack, Chief, or Johnson's banjo. But I had tons of the sons and daughters out of my hunted with. Yes, sir, for sure. So, since you brought up Spring Creek Rock being the first dog ever collected, I got a little trivia for you. What was the okay. second dog ever collected? Now, correct me now. What was it, Demon? No, sir. And Dr. Randy Fralick actually collected him, but it was House's Lipper. Oh, buddy. Now, I hunted with him a ton. <laughs> I judged him. I don't know, 15 or 20 times because he would come to the state championship and I was, and I had to judge, you know, I was one of the judges for the grand night champion part. House's lipper. That is right. But hold on. The whole lipper, the whole lipper there. You're right. He tried to collect. I'm trying to think of this other dog that Bella's had. Demon wouldn't freeze. Striker. Striker. Striker wouldn't freeze. Striker wouldn't freeze. And they did that. The semen wasn't volatile enough to freeze. But Lipper, he did. You're right. Dr. Randall Fraley sure did collect Lipper. And here's a tidbit. Lipper was so trashy. And and, and uh, <laughs> Hopkins would tell you that today. I was hunting with Hopkins a lot in those days. Oh, really? They couldn't couldn't break him off a deer. Yeah. My friend who's dead in his grave now is called Mac Garrett. He says Mac was hunting with Hopkins helping him train Lipper. He said, I know a man in Houston will break this dog, and he won't run him. Well, Hopkins called me. And we got to talking. Uh, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll sell him to you. And those days, I had a check. I had written it for five grand. We went to Frankston, Texas, and it was freezing as fast as time. You could spit before your spit hit the ground, it would have frozen. We had 27 dogs at that UKC hunt. The guy that owned Hickory Nut Harry, now Tim was there. Tim told him, he said, I want to hunt with the old man. I want to hunt with Guy Manning. He said, I've never hunted with him. I said, I, we need to hunt together before this thing is over. And that guy said, what? He said, it's life. And the guy said, I can't fix the cat. I missed him. I, I didn't draw him. But Tim and I, we spent a lot of time together. Lipper was there, 27 dogs. Only one coon was treed out of the 27 dogs that night, and Lipper treed the coon in his cast. And lost all the points but 25 by tree and armadillos. <laughs> but he won first He won first place. Yeah. And that made Lipper a night champion. 
And Hopkins changed his mind. He told me, he said, hey, I said, I'll meet you back. I came back to the ranch and hunted. Frank's was about an hour and a half for me. He said, I'll meet you back at the ranch. He called me. He said, don't. He said, I'm, I changed my mind. So I, I finished the night. I made him a night champion. He treated the only coon. Every cast was dead but Lipper's cast. And Lipper had 25-plus points. He said, I'm not hunting him in another hunt for the next six weeks. I'm going to break him from running the dip. That was and Hopkins. He was committed to what he was doing. Now he was into his dogs. He hunted that dog for four and a half weeks before that dog ever struck a deer. He struck a deer about the the third or fourth night in the fourth week, and he run him till the next day. When Hopkins caught it, and uh, uh, <laughs> Mike McAllister had, had been trying to buy Lipper, and Mike told me this out of his out of his mouth. And Mike used to come out here, and I hunt with Mike. He'd come hunt with me some. He'd come through this country and buy decent dogs. He'd go back and sell them. But anyway, he bought Lipper. He paid twenty grand for Lipper. He said, I don't care about him running the deal. He said, I ain't gonna hunt him. Rumor had it, now Mike never verified this, but he did verify 300 plus. Rumor had it, Mike bred over 500 gyps of that dog before he died. I had bought a pup out of Lipper called Grip. Hopkins told me he had had him scratched twice for fighting. I met him at a parking lot at a, at, a, at a shopping mall in Houston, up North Houston. I bought the pup and went out hunting him, and I said, if I can break him, you keep the check. I said, if I don't, my Hopkins said, I'll give you money back. He, he was afraid to put him in a hunting. Me and a man named Jack Foley and a blue tick dog but broke that puppy one night in the Sienna Bottom in a cornfield. We treated a coon and he was tearing that big red dog, I mean, that big blue dog up. And, and when I jumped on him, all of us jumped on him. We broke that puppy. I won seven second places, never could get a first on him. Max says, I want the best two-year-old dog in the United States out of lip. And, and Hopper said, well, you need to call Guy Man in Houston. He got him. And I ended up selling that dog to Mac. Mac had him sold to a boy in Carolina. And they did real well with that with that dog, real well. That dog was a producer. I thought at one time Lipper would have been in my kiln, but I didn't. Just a matter of changing check, chain hand, the check changing hands. Did you like? But yes, sir. Did you like Lipper? He was a freak, in my opinion. He was a different style hound than that I had ever followed, and up to this day, he could be running the deer. And if that son of a gun run across a, a coon, whether he was up or whether he had been on the ground. It wasn't gonna take him long. He was gonna he was gonna get him treed. I bought Lip out here on the ranch the last time I judged him out of the state championship and a Grand Night Champion cast. I had a guy named Scott in the cast from Oklahoma on the dog called Cop Topper, and I had another Grand Night Champion female three dog cast. I cut him here back in the house, and you know my closest neighbor is about a mile three quarters. When that dog struck struck that coon, he made about ten barks, and I and every light was off. People were going to bed. I saw lights start popping on a mile. Half a mile, three quarters. They had never heard that was the loudest. I thought he was the loudest dog that I'd ever hunted. In 25 minutes, that sucker tree, three single coons. And before the next hour was up, he lost all of them but 25 points again and won the Grand Night Champion part that night. It was a rough night. He was in the armadillo hole. Tommy Tree, and we get to him, he out of there, he'd go. And then you, you had to minus him, you know. But, uh, yes, I like Lipper because he was different from anything. When he went to the fraturity, I judged him the night that he got qualified to go to Fatuity in Liberty, Texas. He treated two coons down there, another dog never opened him out, and he almost lost them all just about it. But he did have plus points. He won the cast and got a chance to go to Fatuity that year. Sure did. Now, and on Mr. Tom's episode, he talked about House's lawyer being the loudest tree dog he'd ever heard. Now, that's where I was going. He was, okay. I, I, I brought him out here maybe a couple of years or so later. 
in the same place I hunted Lippa, because we were talking about, I said, Lippa treated his second coon. And he said, I remember that place. That was probably the loudest dog. Now, I don't know that to be a fact. I never hunted with Judge, who was a black and tan dog owned by Tam Young and, and the older man out from West Texas owned him at the time named Hugh Lowe. Now, I often heard by older hunters said that was the loudest dog ever drew breath. He was a black dog. They said that he would drown Lipper and Lawyer out, and that was hard for me to believe. But, yes, Lawyer was tremendously loud. Yeah, yes, and that, sir, he was. And that was what Mr. Tom was saying on a, when we interviewed him, or when I interviewed him for the podcast. He said Lawyer was just ridiculously loud, you know. He was. I don't know. And you could almost look almost down in his digestive system when he opened his mouth, his throat opened. I just sit there, and I was judging him that night. That Booker tree, the slick tree, too, had a persimmon tree, had three persimmons and one leaf on it. No cool up it. <laughs> and, hop, and, and, and the whole cast, we just sit there and looked at it. How loud is this dog? <laughs> and we were deep in the ranch, man. You can hear that dog two miles, easy. Yep, he, I agree with Tommy. I really agree with him. He was loud. Hey, y'all. Tyler here from Coonutton University. So I'm here to talk to you a little bit about our great sponsor, Extreme Dog Fuel. I personally swapped to Extreme Dog Fuel about two months ago. Man, I've been blown away by the results. I'm going to talk to you about some of the benefits of the 3020 real quick. It's an all-life stage formula, high percentage of available calories for canine athletes, high levels of vitamins and minerals offer quicker recovery and healing, high-quality source of carbohydrates, maintain body condition during peak work periods, extremely palatable, and is loaded with probiotics. Extreme Dog Fuel has actually been told the minerals and the quality of the products that they put in their food is actually overkill, but they don't believe it is. It is an outstanding dog food, and I encourage everybody to check it out. Go to ExtremeDogFuel.com and find a retailer near you today. Yeah, well, we kind of went down a rabbit hole right there, but I, I think it yeah, was pretty good. Right. Yeah. I think it was good, it really was. Oh, yeah, so do I. A lot of people may like to hear that, but that's a fact. He's gone now, you know. I don't even know if there's any straws. There might be a little bit of straws left on him, but not much. But I mean, no, he's done. He's done. Did his impact, you know? Five over five thousand puppies. He, you know, I mean, it's there. Oh yes. So. Oh yes. You know, oh yes. I mean, oh yes. Yes. Whether whether they like it or not, I mean, it's it's there. But I mean, it's there. From from That's you right. talking, listen to you talk, you know. And I like Mr. Tom said about Lipper, and you were saying it. Lipper was ahead of his time. He was. You know, he was. He should be hunting today. He should. You know, I agree. That's right. And I agree a hundred percent. And he would do well. He and, would do well. And so, speaking of those type of dogs, you know, like we were talking about Lipper, he should have been hunting today. But how about all the other dogs that we were just talking about? How much of those hounds do you see in the dogs that we're hunting today? As far as like Chief and Banjo, there's one thing you can't get away from. Of course. With PKC now, circle points or less minus points can win a cast for you. Those days, that would have hurt. If you didn't have plus points or better, you were not a cast considered a cast winner. Coon treeing is the bottom line. Jane Merchant had an old female. I'm trying to think of her name. One as much as any dog, if you go back and research, I'm trying to think of her name. She wasn't going to never get over 50 to 100 to 150 yards from you. And she was going to tree as many coons as five other dogs put together. It's just something about her. She had that uncanny ability that she could trim on or off the ground. And the comparing dogs in yesteryear to today, I believe dogs years ago were bred for, more for being able to track that game 
rather than explode on game now. You got a lot of dogs, and I'm not gonna call any names because I don't want to offend anybody. Just they blow, and there's nothing wrong with this. These these, these young folks, they win with them. Them dogs blow three hundred. You cut a dog loose. Where I'm sitting now, and you want him for another three or four minutes, but he may be 500, 600 yards in there. Give you three or four bars, and bam, he's tree. Start to that dog, you may look at three or four or five coons sitting up. Now, what happened when that dog went through here? And I had dogs like the ranger dog was like that, but I wondered how many coons did he run under, run by, or didn't hunt. I just got a dog out of, out of Missouri, a six-year-old dog, going back to the line that the wipeout dog was, they, that they derived from, that the coma line, a six-year-old dog. I've seen it too many times, dogs running through that tree and one or two coons and, and not hunting the woods, you tell them to lose that. This old dog hunts his woods. You put him in a 40-acre patch, he's going to hunt that patch out. Another dog wouldn't even look at it. He wouldn't even hardly go through it. He'd go around and he'd be in the mile. Now, that's, the way we, that's what we wanted, covering the real estate. But how much are you leaving behind? So to give an answer at my age and to have hunted as long as I have, I kind of lean a little bit towards the older style of dog. Yeah. I do. Yeah. You obviously, you're a line breeder. You know, you were talking about breeding a Spring Creek rock son back to a granddaughter. Right. right. You know, so when you're doing that type of stuff, you're looking to replicate traits, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, you're going to duplicate and you're going to impact the good as well as the bad. Yeah. Well, what? That's why a culling process is so important. You've got to cull them. Okay. What of those traits are you looking to replicate the most in your line of dogs? Consistency. And one would say, what do you mean by that? If I got a finished dog here in my kennel, when I cut it loose, I want it to know. And, and, and most of the time, don't ever think, here again, we talk about dogs with sense. You hunt that dog so much, they, they, are, they are crafting after their craft. They know when you take them out of that box and you walk them to a wood line or edge of a field or road or whatever, you can see the difference in those dogs and animals that they know when you're cutting them loose, you're cutting them loose to go hunting. I don't want you running cross tracks. Now, I've lost a lot of cats by them. my old dog sitting in there banging around on the track. But I'm looking for that dog can take a cold track and can move it with some degree of consistency. I'm looking for one, and this is a bad thing, we, and we're trying to change the DNA on dogs. And this is not the way God's constructed them to be. He constructed them and developed them as pack animals. A dog from Jeltry is a pack animal. They run in packs. But we're trying to make them individuals. We want them what these young folk call them deep and lonely. That's fine. But that's not the nature of a dog. But we work them and train them to the point that we want, don't want them with nothing. I don't mind a dog working a cold track. I don't mind a dog exploding in yonder. But if you explode in yonder and you get your track, get it to the tree and get it treated. And accuracy. I've seen too many of them in the last 25 years. They're tree offense posts if, if, if that's why they decided to go tree and fight to stay there. <laughs> but at the bottom line, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, they don't have a game. I'm looking for a, a consistent dog from start to finish, from the tailgate of the truck to the tree. Yeah. I think you win more, more, more hunts. Well, what trait do you find is the hardest to keep consistent in your dogs as far as like a mouth, a good nose? Treeing. You can get a dog to tree. Accuracy. I'm never, I'm going down the line. I'm going to give you a final answer here. But you cannot tree that coon and have him until you get that track to the tree. Am I right or wrong? Unless you run under him as a limb. You're right. Unless you lay him up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. You cannot have it. I'm looking for a dog can take a track and unravel it and get it through the country and find and find the right tree. Stay with it until I get there. Yeah. So the one trait I look for is hard to contain or hard to maintain or hard to get is the ability to track coon two hours, three hours old. It's hard to do. Yeah. And you got some dogs to track break down. They'll, they'll, people say, well, he dropped it. No, he didn't drop it. He's, look, he's, he's looking for the track. He knows that. He may catch that track 100 yards above where he dropped it or where you thought he dropped it and pick it up where he can smell it and get it onto the tree. Now, I've seen some pretty nice dogs. There are some dogs on the circuit right now. It's good at that. Them young boys out of Mississippi and Alabama hunting dogs, you know. Hell, the Allen's got some dogs out there I've hunted with. The old track breakdown on them. They'll make that circle out there. They may pick it up 100 yards from where your dog's still working in here. Now, I like that. Of course, that comes with a lot of training and, and, and work, but you've got to have that ability to do that and the sense to do it. So the one trait I look at is hard to maintain is consistency, and that, that, that includes a lot of different things. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. Makes a lot of sense, really. Well, I think it does. I, I've seen that too much of that come about. You know, you got a tree to over it. You walk the five trees, look at one coon. You walk the ten trees, look at two coon. So you go back to reproduction, and you know, you got a hundred puppies on the ground, but only one of them act like he want to be a coon dog. Nah, I don't know if you call him a reproducer or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, he's a reproducer. He might not be a good one though. Anything reproduced. Yes, yeah, well said, son. Well said, young man. You're right. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's where we get it mixed up. Yeah, I mean, any, I'm not going to say any of them, because some of them do have trouble, but most of them will reproduce. Now, whether they yes. reproduce good, is that's the question. That's the question. That's right. So, you were, you know, you kind of touched on it. We were talking about Lipper being ahead of his time or whatever, and then the other dogs. You said Lipper might would do good today, in today's time, but overall, the dogs from back then are, back you know way back do you believe that they're better than the dogs of today's time as far as in a competition you know and i guess you could say well those dogs were built for a four-hour competition back in the day and these today are built for a one hour but you know kind of draw a comparison in your mind as far as overall quality of dogs from back then to today it's important to me for a dog to be accurate and if i hunted four hours I made two. I made a tree an hour. That's giving a benefit of the doubt. That's four trees, and I got three coons out of four. I hunt a dog today, an hour and a half. Let's say two hours. I make two trees, and doesn't have a coon in either tree, or I don't find one. And with technology like it is today, if he's up there, that these kids hunting these infrared deals now, they're supposed to find him. I find some kind of heat up there. But anyway, that dog that the track. In a four-hour hunt, making one tree an hour, that's four trees as opposed to one hunting two hours, making two trees and no coons. Or making a tree, two trees with one coon. Who's going to win the hunt? Yeah. Now, of course, you said, well, you had two more hours. Okay. I'd rather take my chances. Say I took that dog yesteryear and cut two of his trees off, making him man, but I'm cutting two of his hours out as well. He makes me two trees. In two hours, and this other dog makes me two trees in two hours. One coon versus two. More than likely, I'm gonna win that cast. Or if say one of the trees came, the one tree that the dog didn't have in the four hours, which I said three three coons with four trees. If this pup go, this dog down makes one tree. I mean two trees, and he has one coon. 
it's going to be probably a jump ball. But then how did you get to that tree? Did you blow through the country and get it? See, we spent a lot of time walking now to different trees because of the way these dogs are. We spend too much time. And that's why I don't like this rule that, that Dale M. got out there, that no leash lock rule. And it's a good action-packed, that makes for an action-packed cast coast. But here's the thing. How many people can live up to that? I personally can't because I'm much older than most of these young folk. But I'm hearing too much come debate now about I can't. This no leash lock rule is, I, I, we don't like it. But I didn't answer your question, and I'm not evading your, at your question. I just, I don't know, I think the dogs years ago had more coons. I really do than what we have today. Because, you know, you win a cast now with circle points, less at least minus points. But yeah. that one coon will knock out two truckloads of circle points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. And, yeah. I mean, like around here, if you tree a coon in a one-hour PKC hunt, which I've had it happen. I've treated coon to myself and gotten beaten in a one-hour PKC hunt wasn't, and had plus points, didn't take any minus. But most of the time, if you treat one coon in a one-hour PKC hunt to yourself, you're going to win. That's true. I agree with you. 90% of the time. Right. I agree with you. Around here. Now, that is, that is not in Illinois or Indiana. That is in South Mississippi. No, that, that's right. You're right. Yeah. You are so right. So, do you have a favorite hound that you've hunted throughout your career, and why? Most of my friends and the people that had hunted with me, those of us who are left, and some of the younger people who've gotten in it and hunted with some of my older dogs, most of the folk that would tell me the old Rachel Jip, who was a Spring Creek Rockbird female, was probably my better dog. Well, the R.J. dog was her grandson. In fact, he was out of the old rock dog I had, who was the son of Rachel. I'm going to say maybe because he was a, won more money for me than any other dog. Of course, Rachel didn't have the opportunity. They weren't available. The first pro hunt, the first PAC, I mean, the second PCA hunt they had out here, my old Rachel Jib won it. But we wouldn't have one but one a year out here. And it was between me and a guy called Rodney Green at the time. Of course, he won the first one, and I won the second one. And uh, I'm going to say the Rock Jr. dog was probably my my favorite dog. And that included his piglin and all that, because he liked him a little pig from nine, every now and then. But he was—he probably treated consistently more coons on the outside than any dog I've ever owned. And the young man that called you, Wesley Young, you—you you know Wesley? He said he called you and asked you to do this interview with me. Yes, sir. Well, I don't—I don't know him personally, but yes, sir, he did, and I thank him for doing that. I really do. He told me, he said, man. If you would do it for he called he said, I'm gonna call this guy because the one man that come to mind up all the years and said, I've known you for you I was a little bitty boy. In fact he left the dog everybody left him in the woods one night. He was just a kid. They wouldn't go with him to get his dog. He said, You the only man stayed with me till almost daylight and you walked every step of the way with me to get my dog caught. He said, they need to know who's the backbone of these hunts right here. And I don't consider myself the backbone these hunts. I just don't believe in doing anybody, whether it's a kid, whether it's a grown man or a grown woman. I don't believe in wronging anybody. Because at some point in time in life, my scripture tells me that you're going to be called into the judgment and you're going to be asked, why did you do this? And I, I don't want, I got enough to give him kind of, but to leave a kid in the woods is unheard of. He thinks RJ is by far, he said he's in the top five dogs that he's hunted with in his life. And this kid now is in his 40s. He loved him some R.J. He was consistent. If he stopped, you look hard. But he thought it's, it may be something there to look at. 
Yeah. That's awesome. So I'll tell a quick story that Wesley told me. You know, he told me that story about you walking with him to the tree. And then he said, I don't know, it was a, many years later. I don't remember how long ago he said it was, but he said your dog was in there deep and he paid you right. back the favor, went in there and got your dog. He did. Yes, sir. So he certainly did. That's kind that of the, a fact. how it goes, comes back around, doesn't it? You know? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it would appear this day and time is in short order. Yeah, I, it, I agree. It, yes, sir. And that's what I tell the, most of these guys. I was down at this hunt Joe had a couple of weeks ago down here at uh, Buffalo. He had a big pro classic down there, which was, I think, was November 27th, right after Thanksgiving. And I was sitting there after the, on Saturday night, and I was just kind of going over this. I hunted with a young man last week. He said, you know, I sat there while I was talking about Lippert, the same, some of the same stuff you and I have been talking about. Got a kid named Jewel Black. He said, I, I sat there and sucked every bit of it in. said, I just want you to know that some people were kind of moving around, weren't paying attention. They were saying that they they don't know that they missed in a lot of history about coon hunting. So I sat there and sucked every bit of it in. It was about an hour and a half, two hours I stayed there and talked to all those young folks about some of the uh, how the path of this coon hunting has gone in the way of competition, even in the way of pleasure hunting. See, my first love is pleasure hunting. I'd rather pleasure hunt than, than competition hunt. I really would. Just love to hear, and I don't have to own the dog. I just love to hear a good animal work. He doesn't have to be a walker. She doesn't have to be a walker. Uh, but it just does me good to hear an animal doing what they were bred and trained to do, and they perfect. That tells me something about life itself. Yes, you know, sir. We can't, we can't worry about what lies at a distance, but we need to take care of what lies clearly at hand. And uh, a good dog is a good dog, and I don't take nothing from it, and I don't have to own it. Yep, that's great advice. It really is. <laughs> I mean, there, you can learn a lot from that. Like you were talking about, that guy was you know, sucking in all that knowledge that you were given, and that's one reason that I started. That's the reason, not one reason, that is the reason I started this podcast, was to be able to capture some of that and to spread it to the masses. Well, I want to thank you, son. This podcast may be the reason Coon Hunt lasts another 10, 15, maybe 20, <laughs> 25 years. Thank well, you, because I've always been a believer. The best of nothing has been done yet. Or said, I do believe there are greater days ahead, because I'm a believer that what he said in his word, that before his word returned to him void, heaven and earth will pass away. And he created it all, and he's not going to let no man come in and, and destroy and, and annihilate that that he has created. And I believe that. Yes, sir. I seriously believe that. Yeah. Of all the things we're going through, there are some, greater, there are some brighter days ahead. Yes, sir. I, I believe that. I do too. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate you for that. Yes, sir. So we were talking about, you know, you were talking about you like to pleasure hunt and that's your real passion, but I know that you're passionate about, well, I know for sure two hunts in particular. So how did the Lone Star 5000 and the Black IP Classic come about? Those are two huge hunts, you know. Yes, sir. I mean, I'd go out on a limb and say some of the bigger, the biggest hunts that aren't world hunt and super stakes, right. stuff like that, you know, annual huge annual hunts well i tell you larry meeks told me one time said now look said now you kind of it's kind of tone that that five thousand down it's gonna get as big as the world hunts because i was wanting the persons to be up in the 20s or thousands some kind of way come up with a program with a uh, you know to attract enough people we could you know give them top kid few dogs you know twenty five thirty thousand dollars 
it was just wild thinking one time. But here how here's how the five thousand got started. I told you that the one classic in Mississippi had run into some problems, some financial problems. Jarvis came to me and said he'd like to have us bring it out in Texas and and I was telling several of the older guys, Cleve Ferguson, Jimmy Ferguson, who is since deceased, he's deceased now. A young uh, a gentleman down in there, uh, Brian named oh boy, I can't think of his name, he's a red bone man. Mike McCown and 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 Snuffy Brewster. I hunted Iola a lot, pleasure hunted, so there's some remarkable hunt. It reminds me of Indiana. I could hunt on several of the major ranches in that country. And I asked them would they be willing to host a hunt if I was able to put together a hunt like that, and we would name it the Lone Star 5000. And they said, oh, man, we're just going to keep our, our, our regular club hunt. I said, I said well, now, this would be over beyond your regular uh, hunt, your regular PKC hunt monthly. And I went to Jarvis, and I asked him, and I told him, I said, most of the guys that I said, I'm su- I'm supporting them. We get to one of the classic in the Texas, and we work, we iron the kinks out and get some, and get, get it financially stable. See, what's to say you guys won't switch it back to Mississippi? And he said, well, that that could be a possibility. Well, I said, well, hey, but that's not what we want. We want our own mice trap. And he told me, he said, tell you what, he said, well, think about it. I was at the, the Shriners Hunt. I used to go to the Shriners Hunt in Louisiana. I used to go there every year. I used to auction all the dogs off for the shrub, for the kids. Sometimes I'd be so horse I couldn't talk. I'd, I'd auction 125 or 30 dogs off simply because we was raising money for those kids. And I have a great story about that. Rena, I just kind of went uh, start helping the Shriners for years. And Jarvis, I told Jarvis, I said, he was there. And I said, I met with several people from Texas. said, we'd like to try to put our own heart together. And I said, we don't have any money. And I asked Jarvis, I said, would you on my own Congress loan me $1,500 to put this hunt together? And he says, yeah. We thought more about it. The next week or the week after, I get a check from PKC from Jarvis. He did. He, he And he may not want me telling this, but that's how the 5000 got started. The first year, we paid him back. The second year, that thing went from from maybe about 140, 150 dogs to over 200 from that. And the third year, we was in the 300s. Because, see, we, I wanted to put it where in January because up north, a lot of people are frozen in. They're looking to get loose. They're looking to come south. And we had some great hunting in our old area, in the Grimes County area. Big scores, good hunting, flat country. And a lot of people began to catch on. Well, it got so big, curtain couldn't handle it. We moved it to Iola. And that has been the largest payday in that little town every year. That's their largest payday annually. And we gave the concession to the FFA kids. Uh, suppliers would come. That was one year we hunted close to 900 dogs in three nights. It was just getting so big. And Larry said, look, so you're going to start competing with the world. I said, well, <laughs> you know, we need to cut back however way you want to do it. Well, at the time, I'd been the president for 12 years doing that, 12 or 13 years. And I started, health has started to fail me some. And I started to relinquish responsibilities to other members. I had about 12 or 14 board of directors. And I stayed on for five or six years, on in around the 20th year to help them with you know, with advice and with raising money, and, and even to this day, uh, I help Joe whenever he tell me he needs us, I'll help him. That's how it got started. The Black Eyed Pea. I was going to Russ Myers hunt. Russ and I have been friends for a long time. Even we hunted together years ago, man, when it was just the old ACHA hunt. Myers and I kind of developed a relationship. I respected him, and, and I think hopefully he respected me. He told me he would 
he's having his hunt every year. But at the time, 16 dogs, it was invitation only. It wasn't sanctioned. But he would only invite people that he knew he wouldn't have a problem with because they didn't have no vehicle built to, you know, chastise people. And I, and he knew I didn't want to be around anything that was going to be a lot of mess going on. I didn't like that. He said, no, it's good. He said, I got a 2,000 acre plus ranch up there. We have it on my ranch. And he does have a fine facility. And that man had some as fine a food as you wanted. He said, just, I don't have any interest. I mean, in the openings now, he said, when you, as soon as I get an opening, I'm going to let you have it. I'll let you have it. Well, I got a friend across the creek over here. You know, he's a guy or two for me named Van Pierce. Good kid, good young man. I carried him. I said, Van, I got an invitation to go to Russ Myers' hunt. I said, I can afford it. I said, but uh, you've been saying you would just love to get in some of the larger hunts and, and, and hunt with some of the some of the better dogs in the country. I said, here's an opportunity. I said, if you want half of it, I'll split it with you. Russ said, I can bring it. We did. We did for several years together. He and he just went ape with Van did. Van is in the cement business, does very well, very successful businessman. He said, man, Bill is one in Texas. Bill is one in Texas. I said, Van, I don't know if the market would bear it. He said, what do you mean? I said, if you were to put a hunt on like that, it is a replica of the Myers hunt. Myers are paying 20000 each night for first place. I says, how many people out there, that's not to say people won't, but how many will support that hunt? You want to do a $16 hunt? Well, Myers went on for several years, and when I heard he called me, or uh, Chester Dickinson called me and told me they weren't going to have it, I went to Van. And Roger Dell, I had kind of mentioned it to Roger Dell, and he wouldn't let that touch him. Man, no, and I understood that. That's that's venturing out pretty good with, with a bunch of hunters. When I heard that I went hunt with Van one night, I said, look, Myers is not having his hunt this year. This may be the time for us to pursue the dream that you've had. And he says, what do you mean? I said, no, he's not going to have it. He, uh, he said, well, I, Roger Dale's at Walker Days. He said, I can get him. I can call him. And I said, well, I was sitting in Van's living room. I said, well, call him. And I sat there before we went hunting, and I talked to Roger Dale. I said, just try it one time, Roger Dale. I believe enough people will support this. He said, let me think about it when this hunts are when that Walker Day's over. He called Van the next week and said, you know, we may have never done this. You know, after people pay 6500 for an entry fee, do you think we get enough hunters? I said, well, Myers had the people up there that did it. I mean, that would come to his hunt every year. The Runny Bone, the Bellers, a lot of those guys from up in the Kentucky, Illinois, I mean, in the Indiana area. So he said, well, how would we do it? I said, yeah, you, have to, you need four guys, you need four good judges, and your entry fee would take care of it. I said, it would be about one to $102,000 in the pot. They went from there. I said, boys, I'll put it together for you. I said, I'm giving you the, what I think of the guidelines. I said, and none of it deviates from PKC rules. We hunt under PKC rules. That's what Myers did. He hunted under PKC rules. That may have been a little bit of deviation, wasn't much. When that hunt entries went on sale, it was filled in 12 minutes. That's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. The first hunt they had, Brian Dale was out here. Man, it went off like clockwork. And that thing must, that thing got bad. I think this is the sixth or seventh year the Black Eyed Pea is coming into play. And you got them now, they've sprung up pretty much all over the country. And I'm going to tell Roger Dale, I'm going to call him in. That was the first one that they had ever had, the one that I built. And that was the first 5,000 that they've ever had. Now, he'll tell you that. That's in the record book. It should be. We never had anything like that. Yeah. You right. That's how it got started. Yeah. And now it's $6,500 Pro Classics are, you know, like you said, popping up everywhere. That's right. That's right. But y'all were the pioneers. 
for it. We were the pioneers. That's exactly right. And and all I ask, if anybody ever questioned Roddy Dale or ever had look in the history book, just give Texas, not me. I don't want no part of it. Just give Texas the credit for having a forethought and a vision to to try it. Yeah. Now, sometimes you let the horse out the barn. He's not going to run off, because he knows from which his, his help come. He'll come back. Yeah, he'll come back. Yeah. Okay, so when Mr. Jarvis first started PCA, how was the hunting for money received throughout the coon hunting community? Because up to that point, everybody had hunted for trophies, right? Right, hunted for trophies. So, yes, I mean, some of the biggest arguments about a trophy... I've been giving them away for the last 20 years and still got my wife to get to uh, in my office, in my little office. I still got trophies over there half tall as I am, and I'm 6'7". And uh, I give them to kids, I give them to clubs, I give them to just different people just want them. Some of them were nice with clocks. My mother-in-law kept some of those trophies in her bedroom for uh, until she died. She died at a ripe old age. She said those were some of the best clocks that ever been made. She kept him there for time. But back to your point, I didn't want to get off into that. That's another No, story. that's fine. But how was it received when Mr. Jarvis first came up with that idea for hunting for very money literally. and all? People were very skeptical. They were saying, if we get in this big argument over trouble, what do you think it's going to be if money's involved? But Jarvis had a great plan, in my opinion, and I have often told him this when we were, we were seeing each other quite a lot around hunts, and he'd come out and hunt with us, and we'd hunt with him. But it went over as smooth as anything else. And I'm trying to think, Jarvis had a saying that he would use. I can't think of it verbatim, but his number one thing was keep honest men judging and making the calls. And some of the best judging I've ever had in my 77 years, plus years, has been from PKC judges. Yeah. Roy Trammell was one of the better judges that I've ever had. And I'm trying to think of this other man who was on Jarvis's staff at the time, older guy. I don't know if he's on. Jarvis told me, and I called him and talked to him a long time, about five or six years ago. He was having some health issues. That man could tell you if your dog moved his head on a tree almost a thousand yards. He had the best hearing and he had the best <laughs> judgment of distance. Eddie Simmons knows him. And that was one of the best judges I have ever had judged me. Yeah. Uh, what is his name? He was a he was a, a pilot too. He had a plane like old Jarvis did, you know. Jarvis could judge. Jarvis was a good judge. But Roy Trammell and this guy were the best two judges in my seventy-seven years that I have had judge me. Yeah, that's awesome. You said people would argue over a trophy, but when you got to PKC and y'all started hunting for money, was it different than everybody thought it was going to be? It, very much so. That went over very well, and then UKC hunters was leery about ever hunting with a PC. They call them a PCA dog. They fight. And I was kind of with the go-between out in our country. They don't fight no more than a UKC dog. If they fight, you take them out. Yeah. You send them to the truck. Yep. Simple as that. And Jarvis was a great planner. He put together, he had it here, Nick Jackamore, the one that used to own, I can't think of that old stud dog he had for years, was a good reproducing dog. I'm trying to think. In Oklahoma, Nick, we've lived, we've since lost Nick. Nick was around a long time. Good man. But, but old Jarvis, now, you used to want a pioneer. Old Jarvis was a pioneer. I just liked that idea. I liked his ideas about this coon hunting. He, he could get it done. Yeah, he was a promoter. And uh, I, I know one time Tim Ball, I, talk, I was talking to him about, you know, about PKC. And he wasn't leery of it too much, but he... He had some reservations about it because he'd been a UKC man all his life. But I think still to this day, if you're in the stud dog business, 
or if you're selling puppies. You can sell more puppies or breed more gifts with a stud dog who's a dual grand champion UKC can than you can with a world champion PKC dog. Now, why that is, I don't know. Men yeah. will certainly, and women as well, will buy puppies out of a dual grand female rather than a world champion PKC female. They'll buy them quicker. I believe that. I don't know why that is. you have an idea? Uh, I've heard Josh from Kales talk about this, and he said he thinks it's because okay, UKC is more of the breeders. Right. But people that hunt PKC... They might not ever breed that good dog. You know what I mean? That's right. They don't That's care. Right. It's not. It's not about that. But mm-hmm. and to be mm-hmm. honest with you, I don't believe that we should have that big divide. You know, I don't. I don't like that we talk about this guy's a UKC guy because I'm kind of no, 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 no. I don't either, sir. Young yeah. man, I don't either. And because I'm like you, like you said, you're. I'm kind of a go in betweener. You know, I hunt both of them. I support both of them. You know, and right. I I really don't. I know you feel the same way I do. I don't like to see that because I think we should support everybody, you know, and everybody. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, that's just how I am, but I, I'm always curious about, cause I've heard Mr. Eddie talk about it, how, when it first started, you know, and how people were kind of skeptical, like you said, about hunting for money. And I just want to see what you thought about that. Yes, yeah, so they were, yeah, they were. So I read, it was an article when he got inducted into the hall of fame and it was talking about you and him went on TV and promoted the Lone Star 5000. We did. Tony DeCero. DeCero, that's right, DeCero. Yeah, yeah, he's since uh, passed on, yes. He was my treasurer for years when I first started the 5000. Tony DeCero, right, you're right. Okay, so what gave y'all the idea of, you know, because that would be almost unheard of now, you know? Well, that was a big event that was a big thing in the in the Grimes County area. Every year the five thousand. Here again it had mushroomed in such a, a big hunt. Like I said, we was hunting there for three nights. We was hunting three hundred dogs a night. And and those FFA kids there who went to Iola High School, those kids were I asked the, the Ag man about the fifth year to just give me kind of an overview uh, of the amount of money that they had generated there. It doesn't necessarily have to be net gross. I mean I just want to give a feel and he did in five years. Those kids had put together over oh, right at two point three million dollars they had made just off of concessions. Cool. People would come from miles around. Do you hear me? I'm talking because there's no hotels in in Iowa. It's just a community. I mean, they got a maybe a general store. On Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, people would come from twenty five to thirty, forty, fifty miles to eat. Those people would put together a steak dinner, a fish dinner and a Mexican food dinner for those three nights. And everybody would bring their family, little kids. And I built it around the family atmosphere. If kids, we had games kids to play. And it wasn't no drinking, no loud talking, none of that. If you did that, we had you escorted off campus. Yeah. Those people would come there, and we had room where they could sit down at a table and get a sit-down meal. And that ag man, well, they had several ag men, but the head man brought the figures to me. One year, they grossed almost $300,000 on concessions. The next year, it was almost the same thing. They ended up, they started a scholarship program for the top kids in that community who was going to college. In five years, they gave away 30 or 5 or 37 scholarships, anywhere between $500 and $1,000 to each kid. Now, that's not a lot of money, but when you think about it, kids can buy a lot of things they need in college when they're starting off. Yeah. And they still have the concessions. And that's what I told Joe when he took over. 
Don't take that from that. That community makes that hunt. And they have gotten businesses as far away as Houston. And that's 60, 70, 80 miles from Houston. I'm talking about business food, food businesses donating. 90% of their steaks were donated. 90% of the fish was donated. 90% of the chicken was donated. 90% of the ground beef was donated by, by food chains because they are promoting youth programs. They build a brand new building attached to their old ag building off of concessions from that hunt. And the TV got interested in that. They were looking for, you know, community programs that they could get behind or they could uh, air and, and, and talk about. And they sent the station for five years running, they sent the station to the hunt. Channel came to the hunt. I believe Channel 8 or whatever it was. And, and, and they was wanting to talk to the, the administrators. But I let them talk to my directors. I would never get on it. And one day they invited me and uh, Treasurer. They asked me if I would come to the station and they wanted to do it. They did an early morning program, I think for 30 minutes. <laughs> and we were seeing all over Brazos Valley. And that was good. It really did help that. I mean, shoot, that was, man, you couldn't find parking places there. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a mess, I'm telling you. Now, did you build that hunt for the working man? You know, yes, sir. to be able to yes, sir. win a good prize. With that's a low right. entry that's fee? exactly right. Yeah. Yes. And they won't have to travel to Indiana or Kentucky. Because uh, a lot of these guys, a lot of coon hunters in Texas at the time, a lot of them never would, had ever gotten out of Texas. They would always want to compete in major events or a high-level event. And I must say to the boys up north, my hat's off to them, they have supported this hunt in Texas. They have from Iowa all the way to Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, they have supported. I remember when my president, the president of Louisiana, who was Jim Douglas, who has since deceased too. He was the president of Louisiana for years. He used to come to the 5,000 and said, me and my wife wouldn't eat when we left home that morning until we got to the 5,000. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. Farmers, ranchers, you name it, gardeners, uh, just regular Coming dear people, they, they, that's why their meal, they, they, they ate out at the, at the 5,000 headquarters Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yes, sir. That's yes, awesome. Sir. It really is. You can't get away from the working man, son. You can't. You, you can't. can't get away from him. Nope. And see, the first pro classic, that's what it is. The first pro classic, I just kept after him till I said, I need, a, I, I need another product in here to attract that 10% that maybe... Who, who would like to be on a little bit higher level. Right. Oh, no, no. Finally got him to try it. And it was $1,000 at the time. I said, let's go with $16. I said, I said 500 He said, well, let's see. If we get 500 we can get 1000 <laughs> So um, it wouldn't last 15 minutes when it would go on sale. Yep. And now they're putting two, and you're seeing pro classics all over the country. Yep. The more I get to talk about this, Roger is going, Roger doesn't need to pay me some gratuities. By <laughs> God. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> oh, no, I good. enjoy the hunts, I tell you. I'm just glad to see them, see these young folks, see y'all keep it going. Uh, there's still a market out there, you know. <clears throat> Do a little streamlining here and there. It's going to be all right, I think, for a good long while. Yeah, for sure. Yes, sir. I guess we, we kind of touched on how does it make you feel to see those hunts at this level today. You got any more you'd like to add to that? I, I feel good in seeing young people and other people who've never thought this was possible. I guess down through the years, I've always kind of delved into the unknown or the, 
what people would call impossible things to do. Being a country boy who grew up on a farm who had one pair of pants, and uh, <clears throat> we had to, we lived off the land the best we could, who never thought I'd get a chance to go to college. I just told my mom and daddy one day, if you allow me and say it's okay to go, I'll find a way. Things turned out fairly well for us. My younger brother came after I did, and he went on and got his degree, who has since preceded me in death. But I don't think, as I said a few minutes ago, the best of anything has been said or done yet. Now, with that said, we need to approach it in a moderate a way of thinking and, and application. You can let the barn door open a little too wide if you got a horse in that is bronco. Give him a little bit of air. Let him test what's out there. And I'm glad there are men still in this world who are not afraid to take a chance. Out of disagreements, in my opinion, has come some of the world's greatest discoveries. The yeah. old locomotive, when they built the old first locomotive, one man told him, say, you will never get it started, one of the, the critics. And the guy who was building said, all I want is a chance. But very quickly, the man who was the, uh, who was the critic said, well, if you ever get it started, you'll never get it stopped. And the train's been running ever since. So what I'm trying to say at the end of the day, there are still some great possibilities and some great avenues out there to be tested. Yeah, but I agree. don't forget the working man. Don't forget that eighty percent. Yeah, I agree. And you know, you're talking about things bred out of disagreements. You being a basketball fan, Duke University was bred out of disagreement. That's right. You know. That's right. That's uh, right. They told him he couldn't have none. He said, "Well, I go build my own." <laughs> I know that's right. You know, that's so. Right. I just figured out that in there because basket. Oh, yes. I've seen people skeptical about a lot of things in this life, but thank God for those who hung around to see what the outcome is going to be. And they, too, when things got good, was able to share in it. Now, that's where your joy comes. Your joy comes in helping people, seeing people progress, seeing the quality of life improve for everybody. And that's what I hope for America. I just hope America doesn't give up on the idea that all men are created equal without enabling rights among those alive, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I just hope this country doesn't give up on that because I still think it's possible. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Yes, sir. You're right. Well said. Really, crazy world we live in, but brighter days ahead, right? Brighter days ahead. <laughs> one, other th- one other thing, and you look at just tonight, I'm going to try to go coon hunt, but I know the darkest hour, if I go hunt all night or not, which I can't and I won't, the darkest hour is just the one before dawn. Yeah. The darkest hour this night will be before daybreak in the morning. So that means that's a brighter day ahead. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. Yes, sir. So what is your most memorable hunt, Mr. Guy? I think one of my most memorable hunts is when I judge the finals. It wasn't me hunting now. You know, I've got a lot of people say, hey, going to give one. No, I'm not going to give a hunt that I've, I've been on a lot of memorable hunts. One of my most memorable hunts was when Larry Meeks came to me. At the finals, I can't think of the year, but Ronnie Bones was in the finals. Doug Jackson was in the finals. And I can't think of the two of them. That was four of the final dogs in America at the time. Larry Meeks came to me. At, at Salem, Illinois. So they had it right down the street from Salem. They use it now as a, as, a, as a satellite club. He says, I need you to judge this final four. They want to hunt it off. And I said, man, that's, you know, I knew I had two good, I had some crack. Crack, I believe, was in that cast. I can't think of all the dogs' names right now. But they were four of the final dogs in the country at the time. They had gotten through four nights or five nights of, of qualifying and gotten into the final four. And for him to come to me and ask me to judge the final he had enough confidence in me and knew that I was going to give the best shot to every dog, not just because somebody else owned him or, or this man was handling him. 
And I said, well, I wouldn't mind judging it. I said, but I'm going to ask you to give me a backup. I said, if you get Tam to be my backup handler, I'll judge And there was some friction between some of those handlers, like Bones and Jackson. But they all were professionals. They were they were remarkable handlers. And you need to stay on to know what was going on and know how these guys reacted. It wasn't nothing vicious where they were, you know, going to hurt each other physically. But, they, you know, you, you need to know because they knew when and where and how to slip one in. Tam says, I said, Tam, I said, I know Meeks want me to be the head judge. Yeah, I said, but I'm going to ask you if you would. Yeah, he says, if you walk behind them, I'll walk in front of them. And that's where he and and everybody respected Tam was a well and still is respected gentleman and a hunter. He ended up winning the nationals, I think, late on in life. And I placed several times, but I never did win it outright. We went out there and we hunted two solid hours. We treed nine or ten coons. And everybody at the end of the hunt, when the hunt was won, we were sitting on the side of a bank on the road, laughing and talking for the last few minutes to run down. And Doug Jackson's dog came through the cast, took a minus, and went 100 yards, fell free, and Doug didn't trim. He was that still left him in second place. Bones ended up winning it, I believe. We went to that dog. He had a sign, two kittens. And he said, well, I did pretty good. And I like what he said. I did all right. I got second. I think that was one of the most memorable hunts and one of the most professional hunts. And one of the most gentleman-oriented hunts I've been on. And I wasn't a part of it as far as hunting. I was the backup judge. We talked about that for a long time. And even today, when Bones and I get together, we talk about that hunt. That's awesome. Yes, sir. That really is. Now, do you believe that the higher the entry fee you pay, the less headache it is? Now, when you say less headache, what are you talking about as far as... People being more professional. I think it may have a part to play. But I also know when there's a lot of sugar, you're going to draw a lot of ants, too. Yeah. Who can't afford to come. Yeah. Now, the AQHA, which is the American Quarter Horse Association, they have a, a ceiling on Buddy, who is a part of it. He tells me about it all the time. And I see maybe, and I had thought about PKC maybe kind of coming to that, how many are you going to allow to participate? Anybody can participate, but you can't buy it off. And it attracts a lot of people, but it also eliminates a lot of people. Yeah. Here again, I'm kind of going by about a bond, trying to come up with an answer that I think may have some substance to it. Yeah, and that's fine. I've just heard some people say that, and I just I didn't know from personal experience. I've never been at a sixty-five hundred dollar entry hunt, so I don't know. But uh, you know. Well, I've been in quite a few of them. Yeah. And I I've seen a great and a high degree of professionalism being portrayed. I really do. Yeah. The level of judging, now, I've seen some of that left a bit to be desired, but we got through it. And uh, But the individuals that's handling the dogs, I've seen a lot. Of, I'm in a great degree of professionalism. I really have. Yeah. Coonhunting University is brought to you by Superior Light Company. Use coupon code CHUPODCAST at checkout at nighthunters.com. If you're in the market for a new light, do not overlook Superior. They make the best light in the business. The Hellcat Max Flat Dark Earth Edition is awesome. Comes standard with the new and improved high intensity green laser. Comes standard with the newest design and dual walking light modules, offering the brightest walking lights currently available on the market, bar none. And it comes with your choice of red or true amber or double red color module technology. The Hellcat Max new module design reduces weight without sacrificing burn time or brightness, resulting in an overall weight of just 20 to 24 ounces depending on your cap selection 
The Hellcat Max offers the newest battery technology, which allows for five hours of continuous main beam burn time on the highest setting and over 10 hours of highest auxiliary light settings. All controls can be found on one easy nine positions click switch. And all superior lights come with a two-year warranty are made right here in the USA. So check out Superior Lights. Use coupon code CHUPODCAST at checkout at nighthunters.com. Thank you to Mr. Jamie, Mr. Sam at Superior Lights for supporting Coonan University Podcast and making this podcast possible. So I ask all the listeners, if you could, please go over there and support Superior Lights. Use the exclusive discount code that is only available to Coonan University Podcast listeners, CHU Podcast. Superior, step up to the max. Now, back to the show. How important is it to you to see the traditions of coon hunting preserved? And how do you think that we can ensure to do that? Good question. Good question. Well, coon hunting didn't just crop up as a sport or as something to do. Coon hunting was a way of life for a tremendous amount of Americans. Hunting, period. It's just like anything else. You're going to find a way to make a living. People relied on their mules, their cows, their dogs, their chickens, their hogs, to raise, to sire and raise their families, even send them to school. And in the process, all of that, all of those items that I named, the animals, they played a major role in feeding their families and sustaining them with a way of life that was comfortable for the times. And thanks to the men and women who had great ingenuity, find ways to improve upon that. And it is utmost important for us as coon hunters, I think, to maintain, to carry on the tradition of coon hunting. Coon hunting is a way, it's an old American, if you could talk about baseball being an old American pastime, coon hunting is an American pastime. Dolly Parton so vividly says this in one of her songs about let's catch the hound. I don't can't remember the county and go to whatever county run a coon. And, you know, I said, see, even here's a lady who's a tremendous star and been for years and a great icon in this country know what coon hunting is about and the part it played in the old farmers' lives and their families down through the years. I think some things are best left alone. It's all right to improve upon them. I just hope we don't price ourselves out of the game. We need to keep you young people coming along and understanding the history and the importance of it and maintaining it. And yet, here again, I still don't think the best of anything has been said or done yet. I really don't. Yeah, that's very, very well said. And, you know, I think, you know, you're talking about back in the day and how, like he's, like we were talking about, you know, coon hunting, that was a supplemental income. It has changed for sure. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. But we've adapted to that change. And like competition hunting's the new supplemental income, I guess you could say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's right. Pe- people have turned it into a hobby, you know? Right. But what are the biggest changes that you've seen in your coon hunting career? The prizes we compete for now, and that's certainly money would be at the top. I've seen a little bit of a change in the type of person that this attracts. Some are considered to be, uh, you know, hired hands, for lack of a better term, handlers, and even people who can afford it. Now, it can be a turnoff for those who feel that they can't uh, afford some of these uh, larger hunts. But that's what's important to me. Don't price that guy out the game. Let him be feel good about being able to 
to, to participate with his dog because his dog is just as important to him or her as, as yours is to you or one that's able to afford it. I've seen a change in the type of hound that we hunt. People are breeding for this explosive kind of animal from tailgate to tree. The old John McDonald's haven't faded out, or, or the Hans Wagners who, who bred the Wagners black and tan years ago. They had a purpose in mind. They perfected that objective, to breed the kind of dog that they, they thought would suit their interests. And, and they became stalemates in the hunting world. A multipurpose hound, a combination hound, you know, big game. Small game, or squirrel dog, coon dog, possum dog, all that was a part of the old tradition. But now these younger breeders are breeding these explosive dogs. Some of them run puppy factories. That's fine. There's enough room out here for that. But let's not get away from the, the foundation. Let's not get away from what coon hunting is about. That's running and training the animal. Protect it because I, I believe in conservation. I, can, I keep up feeders out here on the ranch. Uh, most of the year round for, for, for animals. I mean, not only for coon, they're primarily relegated to coon feeding, but hogs and deer. Now, this is a part of life. There are people who still do not know that there is a place other than a concrete jungle that they can get 10 yards outside of their apartment or there, wherever they're living. Let's not get away from that. We don't need to get away from that. I just believe that there's enough room for everybody. And it certainly galls me when I see people destroying resources, natural resources, just for the sake of exploiting them. There's still some clean air to be breathed, and I certainly hope that we don't won't forget that as a as a people. Yeah. We need to keep and know that He made this universe for all men, not just a few. Yeah, that's kind of where I am with that. What does it mean to you to be able to speak to the crowds at the youth hunts and? everything like that, or just to speak to anybody about coon hunting? I think coon hunting in the old tradition of coon hunting is basic in its nature. It's basic in its nature, and it has a carryover value into life. First and foremost, being very uh, simple, if you've got an animal, you need to take care of that animal. You need to preserve that animal. You need to know that that animal has what it takes for it to thrive also in life. Now, that means to let you know that you're not in this world by yourself. I got an animal, it's my responsibility. And that's what I've tried to instill in children around the country, even at the World Hunt. They used to bring that boy. I spoke to the World Hunt youth for several times over the years since they started it. It's important for you as a young person, first of all, to be obedient. Don't break the law. Stay in the right path. That means staying with the right group of people Simply because the grass looked green on the other side, the fence is not necessarily green. So what, what do you mean by that, old man? Listen to people who are giving you advice as to what is right and what is wrong. It is right, in my opinion, to live right, and that encompasses a lot of things. Whether I do it or not, it is still right. Why? Because our maker and our creator, and certainly our sustainer, our redeemer, says the same thing. It is right for you to live right. And at the end of the day, your rewards would be even greater than what you could ever dream of accomplishing in life. And, and, and I do believe that all of what I've told and what I've attempted to say to children as well as grown, uh, as well as adults, I don't believe it all is falling on deaf ears. Somebody is listening. Somebody is listening. So the tradition of coon hunting is most important to us as a way of life. And it carries over into our adulthood. 
I'm here, but I'm not an island. I don't live alone. If there's nothing more than my hound, I got him to take care of, not to mention the friends that I've met throughout this business. And hopefully not to mention that if I live through these seven days or these six days, tomorrow is Sunday, and I need to go to Sunday school. And there's somebody they teach me about at Sunday school who made it all up to include my hounds and the raccoon. And it's important for me to pay homage to him because that's all he's asked us to do, just acknowledge him as to who he is and what his return is going to bring to those who lifted him up during the time that they could. Yeah, very well said. I appreciate it. Would that be your advice that you have for the youth today, just kind of what you just touched on? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For sure. So, Yes, sir, by all means. Who are some of the people that have had the greatest impact on your coon hunting career? I got so many, I hate to call, start calling names. Yeah, <clears throat> I understand. Uh, and I hope you do. And I hope if this is ever put out in the public sphere that people will understand. Now, so many guys. Yeah. And I'm going to just try to sum it up in this sentence or two. Color hasn't meant a whole bunch to me, if anything, in coon hunting. And from all indication, it hasn't meant so much to other people who have are my friends and have considered to be my friends and I consider to be friends. We look at each other as individuals who are going through this life looking for the best, not only for ourselves, but those that surround us and sharing a life. And people would know who that would be if they ever heard this, yes. Rather than me call names and I miss somebody. Yeah, that's well said again, man. That is awesome. And like you said, code don't mean nothing to me either, man. I'm just, I don't think it should to anybody, you know? There's no, good people of all I, colors, and there's bad people yes, of all colors. I mean, honestly. Yes, 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 you know? yes. And I'm not going to sit here and say that it isn't an issue in this country, because, I mean, I know it is. Oh, oh no, it no, is. I wouldn't either. No, no, I wouldn't either. I'm not ignorant to the fact that it is. But Oh, no, you're right, son, and you're right, and you're wise not to be ignorant to the fact. And I'm not feeling sympathetic for anybody up to and include myself. Because at the end of the day, and, and his word to mankind, I will do the separation of the wheat and the taff. Nothing is forever. So it's important for me to grab and to do the best I can with what I have to do it with. But it's not for me to do it with a closed fist. I need to share it. And here again, all is not going to fall upon deaf ears. Somebody's going to remember and somebody's going to adhere to the call. Sure. You know. And despite all that we see and we have going on in this country, this country still offers to those who endure it and those who make those choices still offer an opportunity. It, and it, it is, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and say that it is not going to be harder for some people. That's right. You know, right. it's going to be right, harder sir. for some people. Yeah. You know, I didn't go to college. I didn't have that opportunity. I went to community college because that's all I could afford. Right. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be harder for some people, Mr. Guy. But sure it is. Sure there it is. I'm not is saying, it's saying it's not. And I know, I know you're not. I, I, I understand. Mm-hmm. But just because something's hard, that doesn't mean that we... Uh, but that's what makes it great. Yeah, that is. You're when right. When it's hard and you do it and you see what the end result's going to be, that's what makes it great because it's hard. Yeah. And if it wasn't hard... Everybody would do it. Not that we don't want everybody to do it, but yeah. it, it, the, the hardness and the toughness makes it great. Yeah, I agree. It makes it worthwhile. That's yeah. right. 
I understand that you said that you couldn't name all the people that have impacted you because you didn't want to leave somebody out. And I completely understand that. But, I, you know, there's no telling how many people that you as a person have impacted. You know, you're talking about it doesn't fall on deaf ears. Well, I want to give you one example. On the episode that I interviewed Mr. Joe Manning, how did it make you feel to hear him say that you were one of the people that had the greatest impact on his career? Him just coming off a world championship. You know, and I'm sure he didn't just mean impact as hunting. I'm sure he meant impact in life. I don't want to take any words out of his mouth, but I'm pretty sure I can say that. What does that mean to mm-hmm. you? I want to. I'm gonna be selfish here a little bit, man. I just, I just got, got blowed up, looking like a Davis toad frog. I got too big, you know. I was thinking that that young man thought enough of me and, and thought of, uh, of of our long history of of, of of a relationship that he remembered me in one of his prime uh, uh, moments of his life. Uh, I, I can't, words are not adequate for me right now to explain what it meant to me. I was elated. I was elated. And I've called him and I thanked him for that. Little did I know at the time, or did I ever think that he would even think enough to mention that, but I did. I was, I was flabbergasted. I really was. And I thank him for that. He's, he, he did a remarkable job. He and that young man, Cole McVeigh. And I had predicted, not predicted, but I told him, hey, we're praying for you. Right? We think you got a chance to do it, and you got what it takes. And here this young man to come back and mention me on a broadcast like that. Oh, I was pretty light, son. I could have flown if I had a, half of a wing. But, yeah, I, I was pleased. I really was. And, you know, that's just one example that's been on here. There's no telling how many people that you have truly touched that you may never even know, you know, that you did. You know what I mean? Well, I hope so. I hope, pray that somewhere along this life, along this way, along this this journey through here, that I may have said, I may have done something that may have uh, impacted somebody's life in a good way, in a good way. And I mean that. I mean that. Yeah. I'm a poor man for his uh, resources and stuff, but the Lord's been good. I haven't been hungry for a long time. Yes, sir. For sure. And yes, I, I personally want to thank you for everything that that you've done for this sport and for people people that have or people that i ask about you i said what about guy manning you know because i ask around when i get somebody you know that i'm Mm going to interview and they said he's Mm -hmm. a pillar he's a pillar of the sport of coon hunting and to me that is that's the highest compliment that you could give anyone you know you're a pillar you're one of the people that the foundation you know of hunting Mm-hmm. discussing this with you i think that those folks are right you know i really do well i appreciate you young man i really do and if i may say this at this point uh, i know we're probably nearing the end of this and this is great i'm gonna give my my enthusiasm and and the energy of course i'm gonna give it to both of my parents but that old big woman of mine called my mother but it just it just didn't get too hard for her and her encouragement to her boys and I thank her for it to this day. I know she can't hear it. She's since gone on to, to glory, but uh, I thank her for that. Yes, sir. Well, she raised a fine gentleman. I, and well, I guarantee you, you that. And well, if, I appreciate you so much. Yes, sir. Well, I, I appreciate you and everything that you've done for the sport of coon hunting. I really do. And I appreciate you coming on this podcast. And for me to be able to capture this and to share it with everybody, I you know, I just know it's going to be great. And I know everybody's going to love it. I really do. Well, I hope so. I hope I'm, I'm embarrassing anyway, son. 
Uh, certainly wasn't my intent. Don't hold it against me if I have. You, you for sure hadn't embarrassed me. I think everybody's going to love it. But uh, well, thank you. He, we about to wrap it up, but do you got anything mm-hmm. you'd like to say before we sign off? Yes, I'd like to say to this country, to this country that I love so much, and not only so much to the Coon Island world, but certainly to the Coon Island world. This is where we, this is where we are at this moment in time. Don't give up. I think there's a brighter day ahead. And he told us in his word that he will not forsake us and that all we need to do is acknowledge who he is and he will heal our land. I believe that wholeheartedly. Yes, sir. And I, well, I thank you, son. Very, very wise words. And I think a lot of people is going to get a lot of wisdom from this one, Mr. Guy. I really do. I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you. I will never forget you. And I look forward to meeting you somewhere. I hope so. I, I really do. Mr. All right. I know your phone's about to die, and I'll let you get off here, man. But thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you so much, yes, young sir. man, and for I, the opportunity. Right, mm-hmm. Good hunting tonight. Thank you, sir. Same to you. Yes, sir. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. I really hope y'all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. If you like what you heard here, go on over to Facebook. Give us a like, at Coon Hunting U. Also, go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And remember, if you need a new hunting light, do not overlook Superior. They make an awesome light, best customer service in the business. Man, their walking light and double red is the brightest I've ever seen. Use coupon code CHUPODCAST at checkout at nighthunters.com. You can find the link in the description box below this. Coon Hunting University is a product of Audio Hound Productions. Until next time, y'all have a wonderful day.